Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Welcome back to Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited for our guest today, Julie Duffy Dillon, also known as Food Peace Dietitian on Instagram. Just to do a little intro, Julie Duffy Dillon is a fat positive registered dietitian, eating disorder specialist, and food behavior expert partnering with people with PCOS on their food peace journey. And you can hear her on her own weekly podcast, Love Food, which is phenomenal. Could not recommend it more. And she'll definitely talk about some of the coursework at the end of the session that she does with clients. But Julie, welcome. Truly Thank so you. excited to have you on. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with PCOS, can you explain what PCOS is and how it's diagnosed? Sure. Yeah. Cause I have a feeling after this episode, someone who didn't think they have it is now going to be marching to their doctor's office. thinking <laughs> Maybe I do. <laughs> That's usually how yeah. this happens. But polycystic ovarian syndrome is an endocrine disorder that leads to an imbalance of hormones and a set of symptoms that has resulted in this like cluster <laughs> of really a diagnosis that for some people looks one way and some people looks another, but it has evolved into this um, diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it's a syndrome, not a disease, but it is one that doesn't have a cure. It is a chronic condition. So even though there's people on Instagram who are promising you they can cure it, there's no cure um, for it, but it affects a lot of people. Mm. And um, it has metabolic psychological and reproductive consequences to it. And even though the name has polycystic ovaries in the name, you don't actually have to have polycystic ovaries in order to have PCOS, which is a really interesting kind of trivial pursuit question. And right now, the way that it's diagnosed is the Rotterdam criteria, which is uh, three different criteria. One of them is absence of ovulation or irregular ovulation. Second is signs of high androgen levels like testosterone. And then the last one is these quote cysts on the ovaries, which is really gathering of immature follicles on the ovaries. And people need to have two out of the three criteria. So what ends up happening is um, it can look different for different people. And again, because of the name, you don't have to have cysts on the ovaries. And so the other thing that's a kind of a, uh, annoying, I, they didn't ask me when they were trying to figure out diagnostic criteria, but it really is a diagnosis of exclusion. So in order to get diagnosed with it, they have to make sure you don't have all these other things. And it has evolved to be a condition that unfortunately is like a huge diet culture trigger. And people are told that they have to diet in order to manage it. And sadly, misinformed that they caused it or they ate something wrong or they gained too much weight or something like that. When we know that it's a condition that is passed down through families, has some environmental connections to it, but it's not something that a person causes, nor can they cure it either. 
So the, that's technically like the diagnostic criteria, right? Mm -hmm. What does it usually present as in people? Like what are the symptoms that people Mm -hmm. are usually coming to you with? So as a dietitian, I appreciate it. I may say some things different than other clinicians, but usually a person is first experiencing before even puberty hits some kind of change in their mood. Uh, Mood disorders are really common with PCOS. And again, that's like oftentimes looking back, people are like, oh yeah, I started to experience a mood disorder right before puberty. But then as time goes on, menstruation can be weird compared to peers, whether it's a regular or um, period is really long or again, it's just not there or it comes once and then it comes again like four years later. <laughs> and, and then other people start to also notice these really intense carb cravings. And with these intense carb cravings, for some people, they also notice a change in weight. And the carb cravings with the weight change is something that I think is part of the magnetic pull from diet culture to like, oh, let's fix this. But what we know with PCOS is it has um, high circulating insulin levels associated for most people with it. And so, yeah, a lot of people will talk about like these really intense kind of primal carb cravings. I don't have PCOS, so I can... uh, definitely identify with craving foods and craving carbs and craving sugar, especially if I haven't eaten enough, which anyone listening can probably say, oh yeah, I've experienced that. But people with PCOS, their cravings are going to be so much more intense. And again, like a primal kind of craving where it's like, I have to eat that loaf of bread. I'm, I'm going to die. And like, it's like every cell in their body is starving. So they're getting the message and yet not really feeling satisfied or full afterwards. And it's again, because of this high circulating insulin levels. So if you've experienced that, sometimes people know they have PCOS, but they never knew that the cravings were a part of that. And I'm like, can't this just be standard operating procedure here? If you get diagnosed with PCOS, you are informed of some classic experiences, one of them being yeah, these intense carb cravings. But you were talking about symptoms. And so besides the cravings and the issues with periods, people often will feel a lot of fatigue with PCOS. Um, again, it's the high insulin levels, probably also the inflammation. So really, really tired. And um, people talk about this kind of like brain fog or just kind of having this hazy kind of experience that happens a lot too with it. And we can kind of go deep into like all the things that could be going on, but those are like the the symptoms that a lot of people will experience um, that I meet with. But uh, there's also like a whole sect of people with PCOS that don't know they have it until they're trying to get pregnant. And they find out that, oh, I've not been ovulating all this time, or I was on birth control my whole life. And now I've come off birth control and I can't get pregnant. And doctors are like, oh yeah, you have PCOS. So sometimes the the only sign a person has is just not able to get pregnant. I mean, everything you just said, I have so many questions. So you can see Laura and I like pulling out the pad and pen, just writing things down. So to get started, How can people handle their carb cravings without getting into this restrict binge cycle, right? And so I would love to know Mm -hmm. how, you know, intuitive eating can be introduced at this point, but just in general, if you Mm -hmm. feel like, oh my God, I cannot stop having these carb cravings, you give into the carb cravings, which you should, you should give yourself permission Mm -hmm. to eat. But then let's say it turns into more of this like restrict binge pattern. What have you told clients to do? So... 
intuitive eating is a foundation of my work. Like that was the thing that kept me a dietitian after reading it. And it, it brought me to the place of like rejecting diet culture and all the awesomeness in there. And I wasn't going to specialize in PCOS, but I kept meeting people with PCOS early, early on in my career. And when I looked into how to help people, it kept saying like diets and treat it like diabetes and lots of crap. And so I was like, well, I can't do that. So I'm like, I got to figure out a way to make intuitive eating work. And what I found basically is that these cravings, these carb cravings show up in, in generally two different ways. One way is either like constant intense carb cravings or the cravings are random, but again, still really intense. And I think they have different meaning and messages for people with PCOS. And so the, the flip side of that is people are trained when they get diagnosed that they have to like eliminate and or avoid carbohydrates and sugar. Don't you dare actually satisfy those cravings. Like, no, no, no. And what I think is really cool is that PCOS kind of has its own language that's different. And these cravings are informative. And so the cravings that are really intense and constant, um, what that basically tells me as a dietitian, looking at it from an anti-diet perspective is that there's these high circulating insulin levels that are so high that the body is constantly starving. You know, when our insulin levels are high in PCOS, it's what's happening basically is there's some kind of defect or deficiency with insulin receptors and um, there's something clunky kind of going on in there. And so the insulin is not able to actually open the door to the cell to help glucose go in. So the body's like, give me food. And it's constant because the cells are needing energy and not getting it. And so if you're feeling that kind of constant carb craving buzz, it's like, okay, let's find some non-diet tools to help lower insulin. And this is where gentle nutrition sometimes can look different. And I know I had to adjust how I brought in gentle nutrition, that intuitive eating principle with PCOS a lot sooner than I thought I quote should. Um, but whatever, F the shoulds, right? <laughs> so, um, but there are things that people can do to help lower the, the kind of constant insulin. And a lot of it is just from dieting. Constant dieting and PCOS will promote insulin levels over time to go higher. Um, initially, it makes, makes it lower, but over time, it makes it higher. So helping people move away from dieting itself is like the best intervention to start with, I think. And that can for many people then start to help the cravings not have as much intensity. And on the, the other types of cravings, when they're like random and seem to come out of nowhere, what I've taught clients to do is to try to find a way to push pause and step, take a step back and be curious about what their body may be telling them. Again, an intuitive eating principle that we use for lots of different people, but with PCOS, there's different kind of things that could be going on, whether it's like, um, not enough sleep, not enough rest, not enough food, not enough of certain um, things like protein or fat or fiber, missing a supplement, maybe just needs to change something with their regimen. Maybe stress is just too high. Um, and, you know, we can't control all stress, but maybe there just needs to be some kind of change in order to help manage those things. So, so yeah, that's how I do the carb cravings with intuitive eating. I think we're trained in this world to like avoid 
cravings and to trick them. And I think, no, no, no. If you can, if you can access this, I would encourage you to lean into them. I'm really cheesy because I'm like, can you say hello to the cravings? <laughs> you know, can you say hello to me? Like, why are you here right now? Like, what's bringing you now? And I think it has really great insight. So it seems like more so rather than avoiding them, you're like, how can we not necessarily push them away, but combat them. So they're, they're not as frequent and not as prominent. Right. So like, can we incorporate more protein, Mm -hmm. more fat to like help with those insulin levels? Is that sort of, yeah, because I, I think that they have a message and it's giving people almost like a tap on the shoulder. That's different from people without PCOS to let them know that there's like this unmet need. And so when you get them, it's like, Oh, what's going on? something, my my body's trying to tell me something. And, you know, first and foremost, I'm like, eat the food first, but then (laughs) like, then kind of be like, oh, well, what is this telling me that I need? And for a lot of people, they have said, it's like provided them insight to like, oh yeah, like I really do need that supplement that I forgot to reorder, (laughs) you know, or, oh yeah, my sleep has been really not so great lately. And, uh, or I need a new mattress. So I'm not getting good sleep. You know, there's something like an information that they're getting um, from these cravings. And so, yeah, if we just avoid them, totally like, ah, you're going to miss out on all this information, you know? One of my favorite things about intuitive eating too is there's no judgment. It's just curiosity. Like what can Mm -hmm. we learn from that experience? And I feel like that's what you're saying. It's, we don't want to necessarily avoid the cravings, but leaning into them and figuring out, you know, what do I really need in this moment? How can I best serve myself? Yeah. And unfortunately there's this kind of message that intuitive eating can't work with PCOS. And I am so opposed to that (laughs) because some people look into intuitive eating and think of it as like these 10 steps and we must go in order and gentle nutrition's at the end. And so then by the time you get to number 10, how high is your blood sugar going to be? I'm like, no, 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 that's just not how it is. Like, it's not this like linear process. Of course, I know you all already know this, but like, it's not this linear process, but it's really this like sum of like a philosophy, a healing, a way to prioritize healing and live with food and figure out what you need to do and want to do as it relates yeah. to your health. So let's get into that a little bit. Like all of these alternative uh, ways are out there, right? Of like for PCOS, you have to lose weight. You have to be gluten-free. You have to be dairy-free. Like what is your thought on that? And where did that come from in the first place? Like who decided that should be a thing? Well, I mean, I think anti-fat <laughs> bias is behind all of this. Like to me, right. because, and, and also like, really intense misogyny. Um, PCOS is this condition that is so so much of it is invisible, right? And the one thing that can be seen is not ladylike, you know, the hair on the face, losing hair on the head, not having optimal fertility and gaining weight. And so um, it's just like this Mm -hmm. like surfacey stuff that is considered... um, quote wrong. I hope people know that I'm like not agreeing with this, <laughs> but, and so again, like, because it's connected to insulin and inflammation, it's a diet culture magnet, you know, like, well, um, we can fix everything if you just lost weight, or if you're not in a higher weight body, well then just make sure you don't. So you better diet just in case. And so what I think with dieting, unfortunately in healthcare or in what your, your aunt or your, your mother-in-law think like, 
people think of it as like a harmless recommendation for people just to diet, to fix something. And what I know to be true, and I know you do too, because I know you two work with eating disorders, is that for some people, that's like the trigger for them to go down the path of hell of eating disorders. I We also know that recommending diets is so rooted in fat phobia and missing out on health. And so the whole push to lose weight, cutting out whatever, um, whatever is trendy really, and has no research behind it has just become the norm. And it's really interesting because when a big, um, analysis come out on how to help manage PCOS, they will state like there is no diet that has been found to be helping most people with PCOS, but then it'll say, so just recommend any, <laughs> you know, like, right. um, not it's, helpful. It's, yeah, not helpful. Like, can we just get away from that? recommending diets, but there's just so much fear of like, oh no, if we tell people don't worry about dieting, what then? Um, I think that fear of just like, what are we just all going to go to hell in a handbasket? Like my grandma used to say, you know, like what's going to happen if we just like let ourselves be. And so, yeah, like in the thing with like the weight part with PCOS is like so complicated because like short-term research shows that a person doing any kind of diet, basically that's been studied in PCOS, it seems to help some of the markers most PCOS research is six weeks long. There's some that are 12 weeks long, but really there's not much more outside of that. There's a couple that are six months long, but there's not long-term data to support decreasing weight to help with PCOS long-term for most people. And so it's crap, you know, there's not data to support it. And then when we look at things like gluten, there's no data to support gluten um, restriction in PCOS. What I've noticed for people that I've worked with individually who've experimented with eliminating gluten with PCOS is that for about two to three months, they feel different, maybe even better. They may notice um, a kind of a clarity, less of that kind of brain fog stuff that people talk about, um, less fatigue. But then after about three months, even continuing to eliminate gluten, it kind of goes back to where it was. So there must be something that happens with inflammation or something in that briefly in that brief period. But then again, it just seems to go back. And so then I'm like, is it worth it? No, because it's not really helping. And then the dairy one, there's some research that came out a few years ago that uh, people picked up and read it as that dairy was inflammatory for PCOS. But actually what the research was, was a, was a low dairy intake in PCOS and the low dairy was two servings of dairy a day. It wasn't eliminating yeah. dairy, which is really interesting because like some people like two a day, two servings a day is kind of their norm. And um, so it's, it wasn't like eliminating dairy. And then the flip side of it is we actually have some data from people looking at high fat dairy and how it helps insulin levels with PCOS and helps ovulation egg quality with PCOS. So we get conflicting data too. And I know for me and many clients that I've worked with, dairy is such a wonderful source of protein and fat that taking it away, like, again, research doesn't support it anyway, but it, it ends up making those cravings come back, which for clients often they'll tell me then it's like, okay, that's informing me that I'm missing something. So, so yeah, that's what I have to say about all that. It's like not supported by data, which we should just, we should demand more, right? We shouldn't just assume that it's not a big deal to just try dieting because it has harmful um, outcomes for many people. And 
it's systemically hurting people and yeah, there's no data to support it. So why are we like making all this risk? I'm also curious, like with calorie restriction that has to produce a lot of stress on the body too. And so if Mm -hmm. someone has like higher CRP levels or higher, you know, inflammatory markers in the Mm -hmm. body, and then on top of it, you're now demanding them to go on a very restrictive, very low calorie diet that is only going to further increase the amount of stress. So it sounds extremely counterproductive. 100%. Yeah. And by the time I work with people with PCOS, they usually are considering themselves at diet rock bottom. So they've tried dieting a lot, but they just don't have another option that they can connect with. And that's really what they've experienced is like, okay, maybe the first or second time it made some kind of difference with my period or something like that. But then over time, it just lost its oomph. And something I didn't mention is, you know, how we can connect going on a diet. And even if people initially have some benefit or initially lose weight and then gaining it back and then going on a diet again, like that whole yo-yo dieting or weight cycling, what we have seen in research is that seems to predict binge eating and PCOS, which in a, a recent study, well, it's not recent anymore. I think it was 2017 or 2018, almost 70% of the people in the study had at least one <laughs> criteria for binge eating disorder and 30% mm-hmm. met full criteria for binge eating disorder. And these were people with PCOS. And what the, the people in the study, the authors were saying is that they were able to find too, that this weight cycling predicted binge eating. And unfortunately then they were like, so we need to figure out another psychological kind of like support mechanism to help promote weight loss. Again, there's this disconnect. Can you let it go people? Uh, (laughs) What about not pushing weight loss? Like why can't that be an option with PCOS? Also, doesn't the research show that weight cycling increases insulin resistance? Yes. It causes insulin, um, higher insulin levels that causes inflammation, like causal research. I mean, I know I'm talking to two dietitians here, like (laughs) causal research is not something that's like easy to come by when it comes to nutrition (laughs) research. So to actually connect with that is really powerful and (laughs) something we need to make sure we keep saying. Yeah. So kind of pivoting, and I'm not sure if, you know, you want to speak to this, but I'm Mm -hmm. so curious with Mm -hmm. fertility and PCOS. I see with a lot of, you know, clients and just even friends who struggle with PCOS, that fertility is this like looming cloud that over and over again, their doctor is driving home, especially the weight loss piece. Like if you want to be able to be fertile and you want to have a baby someday, like you have to manage your PCOS Mm -hmm. through these low calorie diets and restrictive diets. I'm curious, like what the connection is between fertility and PCOS. And if there, if you know of any research or any, you know, mm-hmm. points you can make. Yeah, for sure. And I think to really paint a picture here, I think it's important to name, like, why do people with PCOS sometimes experience the reproductive consequences? And thinking at this point, I mean, the collective we, what I think at this point is the high circulating insulin and the high androgen levels, which kind of feed each other, like higher androgens go, the higher insulin goes. That That will lead then to not really good periods. It leads to a weaker ovulation, sometimes not even an egg being released. And so that's where fertility becomes an issue. And again, like short term, we can do some things with cutting out whatever, and it seems to help. And so whenever I've worked with people struggling with infertility and PCOS, I really just am frank. I'm like, okay, short-term research shows that it may actually improve your egg quality. I basically spent all of my thirties in the depths of infertility. So I'm like, I would have cut off my arm 
to have another kid. I would, I would have totally done that. So that's why I'm like, okay, this is what I'm reading in the research. And just know that short-term it may help, but if you're not able to get pregnant during that time, long-term, it's going to make it worse according to this research. And so I'm a big fan of informed consent. So like, just want to let you know, that's what the data is showing at this point. So for people who are struggling with the reproductive consequences, you know, whatever you can find to help lower insulin and um, testosterone or other androgens long-term, that's going to be something that will improve ovulation and egg quality. There's very little data that like actually has studied um, diet interventions to help with PCOS. But most of the recommendations that like the, there's like a, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, you know, big, huge recommending societies of like um, doctors and other healthcare providers. They often, a uh, research study that was done in the mid nineties as their reason to suggest dieting to help with fertility and PCOS. All it really found was that egg quality improved. Again, it was short-term. I think it was either, it was either six or 12 week duration research, but egg quality improved, but it didn't actually promote more live births. And in that same 1995 research study, um, it also stated that there needs to be a pause and even recommending dieting around the time of mm. conception because it could have some detrimental outcomes to a developing fetus. So there's that. Because, you know, if you're restricting while trying to have a baby, like that actually could be harmful for this, like, you know, growing human. So you know, there's that too. And I think that's just kind of like pushed under the rug or something. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have some guesses what I think right. that's about, but I think it's important for us to make sure we keep a light shined on that. You know, um, we don't have good data, the data short term. And is there really more live births so far now? So what does PCOS management look like from an, a non-diet perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, I have a, a, in my framework, what I really think is important right. is um, for people, I kind of have like three steps that I, I think people really should make sure they have a foundation in. And one is really understanding what PCOS actually is and um, like what causes it, what we know, what we don't know. And that the whole thing that we were talking about with cravings and like how having PCOS, your body will have a different kind of language and just basically learning that language. And then from there, instead of the typical, like, you need to deprive yourself, you need to do without, you can't be satisfied, you can't have pleasure. I mean, that's like PCOS 101, right? My real big push is like, how about we do this differently? And instead of think of like, what can you add to what you're doing? And that's where intuitive eating comes in too. Like, what can you add to what you're doing to help repair and reset any kind of like deficiencies or things that you've been lacking to help your body yeah. ovulate better, to improve your mood Calories. and your energy levels, your sleep, all those things. And what that looks like is adding certain foods, adding enough calories, first and foremost, you got to eat enough. I don't care what it is, Doritos, French fries, ice cream, broccoli. I don't care. Got to make sure you're eating enough first. And then um, adding certain foods to that may also further help things like insulin and inflammation. There may be supplements to add. And then also like boundaries and rest. Like how can you add that in to help? And then from there, like the third kind of portion of it is 
basically finding a space for community and support so you can advocate for yourself and then advocate for other people with PCOS who don't have as much access and privilege. So I don't know, just improve PCOS like healthcare for everyone is going to help individuals too. So love that. And in terms of advocating, you know, what do you say? I'm sure this has happened to many of the people you've worked with, but if someone goes to their doctor and their doctor is telling them you're not going to get better unless you try and to actively lose weight and restrict like that in itself is boundary setting, right? Like saying like, that's not what I'm going to do. Do you have any suggestions on how to deal with that conversation with the physician. And again, as Lauren said, doctors are always put on these pedestals when, you know, they're not God. They don't know everything. Like they definitely know a lot, but not a lot about nutrition though. Yes, that's true. (laughs) No, Uh, no, they don't know a lot about nutrition nutrition class. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I, a little sidebar conversation is that I, when I first worked as a dietitian, I was working in a hospital that was associated with a medical school. And that medical school got all this like positive press. The, the, I think it was the second year I was a dietitian there because they got nutrition education as a part of their medical training. And what they got is one dietitian came in for an hour and taught about adult nutrition and me, I was only a dietitian for maybe nine months at this point, went in and taught a class on pediatric nutrition. And they got all of this like, yay, good job. (laughs) Um, So yeah, they don't get a lot of medical training, even when they say they do, but interacting with doctors. Okay. Something I, I have a lot to say about this because many people with PCOS avoid medical care. And after listening to this and us talking, you know, I, I hope listeners can appreciate why, like just avoiding the trauma of being told over and over again, you have to diet, you're not trying hard enough, not being believed, being dismissed. And so it's really kind of typical for people to avoid healthcare for 10 years or more, just because they're trying to avoid another traumatic experience. And so if that is you, the listener, I just want to let you know that like, you shouldn't have to advocate for yourself. Like you shouldn't have to do this. The doctor really should be not be a jerk face and allow you to access the care in a way that is non-stigmatizing. And there's something about coming together in a community that can be really helpful. I joined up with Laura Burns, who is a yoga teacher and she has PCOS. And we have um, a PCOS body liberation support community where that's something that people in there talk a lot about is just like, they're like one-liners or their scripts that they follow. And also like share doctors that they can go to even though the people in this community are all over the world, but like start to make a list of like, okay, this one's a jerk face. Don't go near him. Not quite a jerk face, but still stigmatized. You know, like they kind of can have a rank. And so um, making sure there's like, basically don't do it alone. But, you know, if there's anything that you can do to help yourself just be, I don't know, I basically like, it's not all on your shoulders and whatever you can do to get ready for an appointment, whether it's like writing down a script, if you have a healthcare team member who is fat positive, maybe you're working with a dietitian or a therapist who can prep the doctor beforehand. That's always really awesome to have an ally in that um, to help along the way. But, you know, you can also, and I say this, like not everyone's going to have access to choice and not everybody can choose. And if you do have a choice, you know, when they go to weigh you, you don't have to be weighed. I don't know how much y'all have talked about this on the podcast before, but like you can write down refuse and that's okay. And also at the same time, 
I appreciate that makes the visit different. You know, it's having to like face all of that. And so I know a lot of people with PCOS, they just go into the visit to get what they need and just try to block out and do some trauma work with their therapist afterwards, which is really sad, but that's like kind of the norm right now, you know? Anyway, um, one thing I just developed is a like a diet-free doctor's handout. So if people are looking for uh, something to print out that can basically you can hand to the medical office, you know, and, and to put in your chart of like, hey, you only have conform- informed consent to provide weight-inclusive healthcare to me. You can't talk about diets with me. You can't weigh me. And so it's in your Amazing. chart. That's so awesome. if you want that, you can get it on my website. <laughs> it's right there for you. Um, and on the back, it's like, Hopefully, if the doctor is like any anyway intrigued, there's like a listing of like um, resources and research and things like that in case it plans to yeah, see. I love that. Thanks. Whatever it takes, right? I mean, th- there's going to be need to be many different types of like interventions to hopefully help. So no, it's yeah. so helpful, and even you know, especially for people in larger bodies who are facing weight stigma on a daily basis and especially in healthcare, mm-hmm. especially in that doctor's office with a condition that people think is related to weight, even though it is not. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so kind of switching gears a bit, we wanted to go back to what you were saying about mood disorders and PCOS. Cause I feel like that piece isn't really talked about and I'm super interested in it. So if you can maybe expand on, you know, which mood disorders are commonly seen with people in PCOS mm-hmm. and what's usually done? Yeah. So there's something about mood disorders and with PCOS that's always been really interesting to me because, you know, working in eating disorders, I saw a lot of people with mood disorders. I have a mood disorder. I don't know. They feel familiar to me, <laughs> but there was just always something different with the way people with PCOS were experiencing their mood disorder that seemed more, um, it seemed exasperated, more raw. There was just something more intense about it. And it, it seemed to go be across the board for most people that I was working with, with PCOS. And in particular, PCOS anxiety seemed harder to treat. So if you have PCOS and you have anxiety and you go to the therapist and all their tools just don't seem to work, it's not just you. There may be something with um, the physiology with PCOS, you know, it has this hormonal component, you know, this um, set of symptoms that or this yeah, set of symptoms that basically comes about because of hormonal imbalance and serotonin, dopamine, you know, how our body regulates mood. That is something that also, those are hormones. And so it makes sense that mood disorders are going to be a part of it. And like I mentioned earlier, a mood disorder is often the first sign of PCOS for people before they even hit puberty. And, um, There's also something like besides the physiology, I think there's also a part of like the lived experience of PCOS that makes mood disorders more common too. Everything we just talked about, the push to the diet, how often people are just dismissed and not believed. Um, It's like classic gaslighting all over the place in PCOS treatment. And so of course, like a person's going to feel sad, depressed, anxious. There's also like this constant trauma that a lot of people, especially if they're um, living in a body that's marginalized, like historically has been marginalized, then it's not uncommon for people then also develop borderline personality disorder because of the trauma that they're experiencing. Um, The only other one I haven't mentioned yet, I think is bipolar disorder. That's also common in PCOS or there's a higher likelihood in PCOS than people without. And it's, I think, again, I think it's like physiology and then also because of like the world's way of treating PCOS. And I think it's really important for people 
who live with PCOS to kind of connect all these dots that they may be all related to PCOS instead of like, oh, I got this too. And I got this too. Like they all probably have this one root connection. And so finding ways to manage PCOS has the possibility to affect all of them. If anything, at least take the burden off of you as like right. this individual that did something wrong. It's right. like, it's not yeah, because it's amazing. Well, I wanted to end... <laughs> the episode with a quote from your page, which was carbs yeah. and weight gain aren't the PCOS enemies, fat phobia is. Because I Thank love that. You. As I was going on. Yes. Now. Yeah. You'll notice I didn't talk about carbs as a bad thing. <laughs> I don't really think it's the evil right. with PCOS. Mm-mm. So Julie, tell our listeners where they can find you, how you currently work with clients, all of that. So the way to work with me, um, I mentioned earlier, PCOS Body Liberation Community. That's a support community that I run with Laura Burns. And what we do is provide space for people to find non-diet support while living with PCOS. Uh, we do retreats and things like that. And you can find information on that at PCOSBodyLiberation.com. And then to work with me individually, I have a course that I have for people with PCOS who are looking for non-diet ways yes. to manage um, their... Um, PCOS and you can get to that at PCOS and foodpeace.com. Oh my gosh, I almost had a brain fart. <laughs> but if you do like podcasts and you obviously do, cause you're listening to one, like Thank you said earlier, you, you can also listen to me at love food. It's um, on all the podcast apps as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. This Yay. was so fun. Thank you. Thank you for letting me dive into all things PCOS. It's always fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review, let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.